This morning we're continuing our series in uh, looking at John, John the Baptist, and we're looking at uh, particularly the testimony in John's Gospel to John the Baptist, and Andy Bell is going to come and read for us. The reading is taken from John chapter 3, starting at verse 22, which can be found on page 1066 of the Pew Bibles. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Amen. Last night, uh, Operation Mobilization celebrated 60 years along with its founder, uh, George Verver, uh, in a wonderful evening of praise in the Waterfront Hall, and quite a number of you uh, here were at that. And it's our huge privilege to be able to, to welcome Steve and Sandy uh, to uh, Bloomfield this morning. Uh, they're going to uh, share a little bit about uh, Simone, in uh, Nepal and other things, and I see there's a bookstall over here, which is great. Can I hand over to you? You're very welcome. Do I need to move this? Yes. Thank you. Hello, my name's Sandy, and uh, Steve thought it would be good for me to go first because you'll recognise that um, I'm a local girl. Actually, I'm from Donegadee, and our previous director was from Belfast, and he used to call me a country girl. Anyway, so I am from Donegadee, and I actually worked in the Ulster Hospital as a secretary, secretary uh, back in the 80s, and um, I thought you might be interested to know that. So I joined OM, actually, left home, joined OM in 85, when I was quite young, and uh, I was actually quite excited to discover that God uses all sorts of people, and people like not just doctors and nurses and teachers, and I realised that God needs secretaries as well. So I went to Belgium and worked as secretary to the European coordinator for a couple of years, during that time, I became really interested in the work in India, 
and travelled on the last overland trip to India in 86. And um, I'd met Steve in a couple of places along the way, as you do at these various things. And uh, Steve and I finally ended up in the same country again, three years, nine months later, after our first meeting. Uh, we got married in 1990 uh, in Portrush. And, um, and then we moved over to Oxford and uh, we then went to Bible College. And we ended up joining OM again as a family with two children and went to Doulos to the ship and we were on board for three and a half years. And then from there, our heart was to go back to the Muslim world. So we were back in, we went to Bangladesh then as a family for eight years. And I thought it was worth mentioning that during that time, our children later went to Hebron boarding school and um, they were there, Alex was there for three years and one of his teachers was Alan Dickey. And I know many of you will know Alan and Ruth. So um, yeah, Hebron was a great experience for our children. They did very well there. Um, so Steve and I came back to the UK and we've been back working at the head office uh, in uh, Shropshire. And we've been there since 2008 and we both work in personnel. And it's in that role that Steve has come across Simone. So I'll hand over to Steve. Great, yeah, so that's the introduction. Um, yes, yeah, so we work in personnel, and I'm really happy to be with you this morning because in my role in personnel, it involves people going to Europe and East Asia. And I was the personnel officer, as we call them, who handled Ruth Moore going to Moldova. So I've, I was involved with her journey, and then also with Simona going to Nepal. I see you've got her most recent prayer letter, and maybe p people of you have seen um, pictures of hers on Facebook. I Skyped with her just this last week, just to touch base, and she sends her greetings and says hello to you all. Um, it's been great to get to know Simona as she inquired, as she applied, as she went through orientation, and I've kept in touch with her while she's been in Nepal. Nepal was the very first country I went to, and yeah, we always associate Nepal with those beautiful mountains, so start with those pictures. The next one is the city. There's a lot of pollution, and as you see from the next picture, with the mask, um, Simona's telling me she wears a mask when she's cycling, and you can pray for safety, because she said even the other day she was almost knocked off a bike, and uh, safety and health is, is key. She is in good shape, as we'll see later. Um, the next one, we'll see church. It's wonderful to be with you today, and the wonderful band and everything, and Think of the contrast with small little churches there as people come to Christ from, you know, the Hindu, Buddhist, Tibetan background. The next one, Simona loves trekking. I just, you just heard about the walking. She loves hiking. And it's great that she's been on some various trips and the Lord's kept her well. And I'm sure you've read about that in her newsletters. Um, we keep going. Langtang the scene of the big earthquake two and a half years ago, 30 meters of um, rubble that's just ended up on a whole village and community. There's a, a young lady from England, Becky, who was involved with the Langtang community, Tibetan people. Before the landslide, it was devastating to, to, to know those people and to see what happened to that community. And OM has been involved in rebuilding and with Simona being a landscape architect. She's now been studying, um, she's on a research student degree and she's doing a project using her skill, her profession as a landscape architect, researching trees, replanting of trees where there have been landslides. And her, her supervisor really wants her to do a great job and actually have her work published. So you can pray because she feels under pressure um, for that. 
Um, she's just recently moved house, um, so she's an hour and a half away now from the church that she, used, she still goes to. It's quite a journey, um, if you can pray for her. Um, the next picture, think about her, the community as, it, as they rebuild um, up in Langtang and as they're involved with Tibetan people in Kathmandu as well. Um, the next picture, Tibetan people. Um, and the next one, does anyone know? I didn't know that she was into climbing. And she's discovered a climbing wall. And this has been a real le new lease of life for her. And so she is keeping fit. She's keeping well. And she's going there regularly now. And she's actually taking her computer, doing her research there. And she's found this is the most natural place to do evangelism, to share the gospel and the good news. Um, so pray for her as she, as she connects with people there. And just to close with just a few things to pray with, for. She's got two more months. She'll be there to the end of November. Please pray that her time there finishes well, um, that, that she'll have great opportunities to share the gospel. She hopes to have a few more hikes up to Langtang um, in October and November. Pray for her future. She is planning to go to Germany and then back to her job here. She, as you know, she's been in Belfast for 10 years. Um, so we do appreciate it. And it's just wonderful to be with you here this morning. And this partnership that we have in the gospel, when we think about Ruth, in, who went to Moldova, and Simona um, in Nepal, we just feel very blessed to be with you. Thank you. Uh, this is a bit awkward, isn't it? <laughs> um, it, it? It's a bit awkward. Uh, bearing in mind what, what Sam said last week that I want to pick up this week, this really is a bit awkward because I'm standing up here uh, and talking to you. And who are you all looking at? Well, pretty much everybody is looking at, at me which now that I think about it is really weird. Because like Sam last week, and I suppose the thread running through uh, all of our consideration of John the Baptist is, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Now, how do you do that? So, I mean, it, literally, what do you do with your eyes at this point? You're still looking at me, so I'm, I'm really not sure where we're going with this. How do, how, how do you actually get you to look at Jesus? Oh, really? What does it mean? Well, uh, back windows, I suppose. You, know, you could look at those, and, and you've got symbols in the back windows. But how do you look at Jesus? Yeah, we, we could go into the Bible and see... Uh, stories of Jesus, prophecies of Jesus, reflections of the gospel writers and uh, Paul and the others on Jesus. But how do you actually look at Jesus? Hmm. Well, let's pray together and see if we can find a way forward. Shall we pray? Lord, we, we know what we want to do this morning, and we know what the Bible tells us to do. So help us to develop in our minds, in our lives, in our thinking, 
the ability genuinely to see you and maybe to go a bit beyond that as well. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. If I have a, a theme for, for this morning, it's, it's not really a seeing theme. It's more a passing around the sweets sort of theme. Now, that may be ringing a bell with a couple at the minute. Anybody doing that at the minute? No, I don't expect a show of hands, really. But, you know, take some and pass them on. Yeah, that's the idea. And that's really the thread that holds all, I, I want to say, uh, together this morning. Because the section that we have here from John 3, 22 to 36, falls into a couple of distinct sections. And the connection between the two sections isn't straightforward at all. In fact, it's so confusing that in some Bibles you have one translation and in some Bibles you have another. And the difference between the two translations is just a couple of little marks. Because one of the questions about this section is, where does John the Baptist stop speaking? And where does John the Evangelist start speaking? So, for example, uh, well, the key place is at the end of verse 30. I don't know. Quick show of hands at this one. Anybody got uh, a close of the quotation at the end of verse 30 in, in your Bible? No? One or two? Duh. One at least. So, at least there are two of us who aren't heretics then. Um, I'll come back to, to that later. I didn't want to put any images of this up. What do the following have in common? Hairdressing, painting, getting married, having people around for dinner, singing, baking, and dancing. What do they all have in common? Anybody? You, you folk obviously never watch class television then, do you not? <laughs> you obviously watch rubbish. You never, you never watch intellectually stimulating television. Because each of these has been made into a quiz show or, or a competition. Uh, baking, of course, we're, we're very familiar with, and dancing we're familiar with, and cooking we're familiar with. Uh, living together, what am I thinking about? Big Brother and, and similar uh, things like that. Um, Getting married. Oh, what a fantastic program. That, I, I, I'm going to come back to Don't Tell the Bride later. It's one of my favorite TV shows, I have to say. And I only found out yesterday, I only found out yesterday, that there's actually a competition for hairdressers on TV. Anybody come across that? No, I, I can't. The name's just gone. But we have this, this great desire to turn things into competition these days. And I'm not going to talk about sport at all, but, you know, we could talk about that for ages. But we like competition. And I think it's because it's rooted in, in who we are as human beings. Because really from about a hundred years ago, the earth or human society moved to a different place. Up until about a hundred years ago, the whole world was characterized by competition for resources never quite enough food to go around, 
so you stole somebody else's. Never quite enough land for your people, so you invaded somewhere else. Always this competition. From about a hundred years ago, things changed. In the West, we learned how to manufacture things. We learned how to manufacture uh, enough goods for our homes, and we learned agricultural methods that allowed us to produce actually more than we needed. So, did competition die away? Well, no, it didn't. It simply became different. So, that the advertising industry began to develop. Um, It was there to some degree before, but from about the, the, the teens and 20s on, it began to develop. And the competition became about selling, because we have so much stuff, we need to sell it. And our competitors are making so much stuff, and they need to sell it. So, why do I want to talk about competition? Well, because that's where we start the reading. If you look down from 22, you'll see competition. But it's a different type of competition from the ones that I've been talking about. It's competition that was a heartfelt competition. Think of these disciples coming to John. And if you're visiting with us, uh, by the way, the little numbers and brackets are the verses that I'm referring to. Please follow them along with me. Sometimes I'll refer directly to them. Sometimes I'll depend on you to to look at the text uh, for yourselves. In these verses from 22 to 26, John's disciples come to him and say, what's going on here, Rabbi? The man whom you were talking about, who was with you on the other side of Jordan, well, he's baptizing. So, what's going on here, Rabbi? We're baptizing. He's baptizing. That looks pretty much like competition. And to make it even worse, with a little bit of hyperbole, of course. It looks like everyone is going to him. They're leaving us and they're going to him. What's going on here, Rabbi? Now, that's not the competition of a TV program we're talking about. That's a competition that says, Rabbi, we're concerned about you. Did you get it all wrong? Has he got it right? And, Rabbi, we're not just concerned about you. Let's be honest about it, Rabbi. We're concerned about ourselves. Have we got it wrong? Because some of us have left family and work, and we've come to follow you. Some of us have given up good jobs. Some of us have left everything to follow you. It wasn't only Jesus who attracted disciples like that. Rabbi, are you going to tell us we've got it wrong? Has this been for nothing? That's a different type of competitive question that's raised for many people in the contemporary world. And actually, it's a competitive question that I wish more people would raise, that more people would be thoughtful and look at their lives and say, where is all of this leading? Have we got it wrong? So, what's, what's John's answer? <laughs> Were you not listening to me, folks? No, did you not get what I was saying? Do, do you not remember? I've, I've been saying this all along, is what he, he says. 
I've been pointing to, to this person. I've been saying, after me who comes one who was before me. Someone who's superior is coming out. Well, you're not listening. Sums it all up in one verse. And I suppose if uh, many folk know one saying from, from John's lips, it's perhaps the verse that we have in verse 30. He must become greater, I must become less. Although, curiously, that's not the verse that I want to look at in a minute. Let's go back to weddings for a minute, all right? Anyone like to fill in the blank? Yep, yeah. yeah. I'm tempted to say, let's all say it at once. It's the... Wrong, of course. Yeah. See, that's in Western weddings, isn't it? In Western weddings, it's the bride's big day. And now we come back to our favorite television show. Do you know, do you know any of the other shows about weddings? That's a, okay, come on. Have you, have you watched Don't Tell the Bride? Come on, somebody else. Yes? Come on. Be honest. You guys, really? Okay, fair enough. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a sort of macho thing to do. What about uh, say yes to the dress? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a number there. Bridezillas? Have anybody come across bridezillas? No? We're more specialist territory here, aren't we? And then, then my favorite, four weddings. Anybody seen four weddings? No, we're not talking four weddings and a funeral. Four, four weddings. It's a, it's a series. And I want to finish with this one because this is the one that really gets to me. Because the thesis is that there are four women who are getting married, and they all attend each other's weddings. And then what do they do? They score them. They mark them. And there's a winner who gets a free honeymoon, if I remember rightly. What's that all about? What is that all about? It's all about the bride. John? John, is that right? Is it all about the bride? Of course not. It's all about the groom. The core of what John came for, the core of why he lived, the core of why he preached, the core of why ultimately he gave up his life was all to point to the groom, to the one for whom the bride was being prepared. And I, I was tempted at this point simply to talk about weddings and the role of the best man and what the best man does, but that's not quite right because this metaphor of the bridegroom is actually only one of a number that John the evangelist uses here to describe what John the… it all gets confusing, doesn't it? What John the Baptist does, but also to describe what we do and what a rather naughty woman did. Let me walk through some of these. First, a question. If we were stopping now for Life Builders, I would say break into groups of four or five and think of any other metaphors that John could have used at this point. 
This idea of being the one who is in the background, the one who points to the uh, star, if you like, the one who prepares the way. Remember that metaphor of preparing the way? The one who makes it good for him. Any other metaphors come to, to your mind? There are a few that I thought of. Uh, something like the mechanic who prepares the racing car for the driver to go out and do the race, uh, to, to um, drive in the race. Sort of, but, but not quite. Or, or what about the sous chef who prepares the vegetables for the chef to cook? Again, sort of. What about the makeup artist who prepares the actor to go on screen. I really would love to stop now and see if you can think of, of four or five more. Not just as an exercise, but because each of them is saying something to you and I. Because preaching is not just about interesting historical ideas about a person in the Bible. Preaching is about what you and I do. And I come back to that question. How in practice do you and I point people to Jesus? How do you and I enable people to see Jesus? And John says to us, well, it's a little bit like a bridegroom saying, the bride's come, sorry, cut that, <laughs> it's a little bit like the best man saying, the bridegroom's coming. Because in the ancient Near East, the big arrival was the arrival of the groom, not the bride. And the best man was there to prepare things, to make sure that everything was ready for the groom coming, or any of the others. So, what does that mean? How do we do that? How do we take up our best man's duties as individuals and as a fellowship together? I want to suggest to you it's all about communication. And when it's all about communication, the key verse is verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And the implication of that is, and pass it on. John receives his calling to be the best man, and in doing that, passes on what he has given and points to Jesus. And you can see exactly the same thing going through the, the words of John the Evangelist as he takes them as he takes us on here. Look at verse 27, for example. Uh, sorry, 27 and 28. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven, like a prophet in the Old Testament. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. Ahead, ahead, that's the Old Testament, going ahead of Jesus. He received, he passed on, going to prepare the way for Jesus. That ring any bells with anybody? Is God calling you to that sort of ministry? Is God saying to you, actually in your office, I want you to prepare the way for me by how you treat your fellow workers? You're not going to be the one who's going to talk to them a lot about me. Somebody else will do that, but that's okay. You prepare the way by how you treat them. Or could it be 
passing on the message like the best man. We're coming back to, to this idea again in, in 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He hears the voice. He passes on the message. The groom is here. Anybody at that stage, obviously I don't know, anybody at that stage, is God saying to you, actually now is the time for you to speak? Now is the time to speak to your neighbor whom you've been wondering about for a while. Should I say something about Jesus? Should I not? They're ready. I'm ready to meet them. Now is the time to talk. Are anyone ready to pass on rather like verse 30? See that, that sense of passing on. He must become greater. I must become less. This is, this is quite a difficult one because this is saying to, to, to some folk, actually your job is done here. It's time for you to pass it on to someone else. And I tried to think of a few examples of that. And if I can continue on with, with the employment one, we often think, when is it time to, to move, to, to leave a job? When is it time to go on? Is it time to progress my career up the next couple of steps? Am I getting just frustrated and annoyed with, with work and it's a real bind to me, so it's time to move on? Ever heard God saying, actually, your job's done here. Time to move on. Time to go or in another aspect of life. The last time you moved house, I, I can say this because we didn't, did you sit down and say, Lord, is my time in this neighborhood done? Is it time for me to move someone else, somewhere else? Was that part of your thinking? No, I confess it wasn't part of mine. Or passing on the message like Jesus himself, I was saying, uh, just before I come in, this is one of the places where graphics just ran out for me. I, I never know what picture to, to put in when I'm talking about Jesus like this. They all come up short, don't they? They just do. John tells us in this last section about how to pass the message on, just like Jesus did it. Verse 31 tells us that Jesus had fantastic news. The one who comes from above is above all. Okay, that first part of the verse. In verse 32, we find the same thing. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 33, uh, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. This is Jesus he's talking about. He has come from heaven and Jesus testifies to all that he's heard. But the bad news is also in verse 32. Do you see what, what, I, what I didn't read? He's got fantastic news. He brings it to us, but no one accepts his testimony. Again, a little bit of hyperbole there. Of course, there were a few who did accept. So, was Jesus a failure? Received from heaven, wanted to pass it on, but few believed him until... What happens in 33? Until they see it in action. 
The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. In other words, the one who accepts Jesus' teaching, who accepts Jesus, what He brings, the message, and begins to live it, that puts the stamp, it's the idea of a stamp or a seal, that puts the stamp on the words. Isn't this, isn't this incredible? <laughs> that Jesus brings this incredible, fantastic news from heaven. He brings it to earth, but people just don't accept it until they see you and you and you and you and me. Until they see us living the message, that's when they know, ah, that makes sense. That's something I can accept. That's something that can change my life. Why has God chosen to do it like that? I haven't the remotest idea. I have no idea. But time and time again in Scripture, we see the same thing coming through. That Christ brings things to His church. They can't go outside the church unless we are fully living them. But as we fully live them, then people see. Then people understand. And we can do this. We can live like this. Why? How do we know we can live like this? Because something else that Jesus passes on to us is the Holy Spirit. And I was glad when Alan Ryan read earlier that he read from a particular translation, because some translations have verse 34 a little bit differently. 34 in the Pew Bibles, I think, reads like this, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. And that's what the Greek has. That's exactly right. Some translations put in there, and you'll see it in the footnote, for God gives to him the spirit without limit. But that catches, that only gets half the picture. The Father gives the spirit to the Son, who then gives it to the world, because God gives without limit through the Son to the church to go into the world. Again, you see, it's that process, isn't it? That, that passing on. John receives the message that Jesus is coming. Jesus has this fantastic message of salvation that He brings to the world, but the church is to pass it on. Father, Son, and Spirit come into the world, and the Spirit is among us to enable us to pass it on. Take some and pass it on. Or, putting it another way, in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We leave the second half for a minute. There's another thing that we're to pass on. We have the message, the Spirit, life. Jesus passes on the very life of God to us. So we come back to our original question. How do you see Jesus? And the terribly scary answer is that not just looking at me, but form a queue, come up into the pulpit, and each time you pass the microphone, say, You see Jesus by looking at me, and move on. And the next one says, You see Jesus by looking at me, and the next one, and everyone comes down from the gallery and from the front and the back, and you come up and you stand where I'm standing, and you say, you see Jesus as you see me. Because the life of Christ is in me. 
On the one hand, that makes me shrink back. That makes me think, Lord, what a blurred picture people are getting of you as they look at me. What a bad image I am of you. But on the other hand, the glory, the majesty, the fantastic news is that the life of Christ is in you with all of your weaknesses, with all of your feelings, with all of your frailty. The life of Christ is in you, and nothing can destroy that. Whatever you're um, going through at the minute, whatever difficulties you have that you're facing, nothing can destroy that in you. And as you live the life of Christ in the awfulness of the circumstances that you're going through, then people can get a glimpse of Jesus. They can. They really, really can. That's fantastic. Did you ever believe that the God of the whole universe could let people see Him by looking at me? But that's how he's chosen to do it. Sometimes the chapter divisions in the uh, Bible aren't terribly helpful. I think chapter 3 really should have finished at verse 30, and chapter 4 should have begun at uh, verse 31, because I want to finish with that naughty lady in chapter 4. Because in that naughty lady, we see a female John the Baptist. There's a strange way of putting it. If John the Baptist represents the Old Testament prophetic witness to Christ that says, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming, then the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 represents the New Testament witness to Christ that says, He has come, He has come, He has come, He's told me all about myself, He has come, come on, come on and see Him, come on. And if a Samaritan woman, with all of her weaknesses and faults and failings, could bring a whole village to Jesus, why? Because not only did they hear the words that she spoke, we, we see that in, uh, I think it's 28 and 29, um, not only did they hear her words, but her boundless enthusiasm brought them to the place where they met Jesus. And they then took their place alongside her saying, we now have met Him. We now are the ones who can speak from our personal experience. And we take our place with John the Baptist. We take our place with the prophets. We take our place with the twelve. We take our place with Mary. We take our place with the saints and heroes of the church in all ages. And we take our place with the people of Bloomfield Presbyterian Church this Sunday morning as people who have met Jesus, who have experienced Him, and they want to go and live for Him. Shall we do that? Shall we do that when we leave here? What do you think? Yeah? Let's pray together. Savior, when we look at ourselves, we think you really could have done much better. You could have chosen more gifted people. You could have chosen more people, people who are more naturally, morally upright. You could have chosen people who know what to say all the time rather than me who just stumbles his way through, rather than me whose life isn't up to much, rather than me 
who has a limited set of gifts rather than me. But you've chosen all of us, all of the me's here today who follow you, who have heard your word, who have glimpsed something of your glory, whom your spirit has come into and transformed us, to whom you have given your life. You've chosen me. So now, gracious Lord, as we go back into all the places from which we have come this morning, back home, and that's difficult, back to work, that's difficult, back to school, and that's really difficult, back to college, and that's difficult, back to the sports club, and that's difficult, back to the shops, and that's difficult. Lord, we go bearing your life, animated by your Spirit, and all we can do is praise your name. All we can do is bless you. All we can do is worship you for all that you have done for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so very, very, very much. Amen. Shall we pray together? We come with our, our prayers of intercession. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have opened the door to us and allowed us to come into your close presence, to come in and to confess our sins before you, to come in and give you thanks for the good things that you have given to us, to offer you our worship, but you've allowed us to come in and bring before you people and situations that we know you care about. And so, our Father, we pray today for those for whom living the life of Christ is difficult. We've already thought of ourselves in the difficult situations in which we can find ourselves, and, and, and so we, we recognize some who are sitting close to us or beside us, in front, behind, across from us who are going through difficult days. Some who are not here this morning going through very difficult days, and we pray for them. We pray that in the pain, in the anguish, in the frustration, even in the hopelessness that may seem to envelop them, Lord, may your creative life break through bringing light out of darkness and order out of chaos. As we think of the community that we are part of, gracious Lord, we recognize that we live in, in uncertain days. And particularly, we live in politically uncertain days. None of us has the remotest clue what the next few years is going to hold. And so we entrust ourselves to you as a community, and in particular, we entrust our leaders to you. And we pray that you would give them the wisdom that they need, the ability to set themselves to one side 
their own personal interests to one side and to put the good of the community as a whole in the forefront of their thinking. We pray, we pray globally, Lord. Again, what does the next wee while hold for North Korea and the United States? Who knows, Lord? Well, of course, you do. And so we pray that by means that are only open to you, but perhaps using people who, are, who have given their lives to you, that you might bring order and peace out of this potential chaos. We come down again from the international level and we think of families, villages, individuals whose lives have been destroyed by natural disasters. Seems that every week something happens. And so we pray that we as human beings might care for the planet on which you have put us so that its natural difficulties are minimized and that we do not contribute to these problems. And we pray that as these things do arise, we as a global community might come together and seek the common good of those whose lives have been ripped apart. In particular, we pray for those who have so few resources in the developing world. Lord, touch our hearts as you have done in the past so that we might give and use whatever influence we have to see that right is done. Lord, it is quite beyond us to know how we can pray for things that we only as individuals know about in the depths of our hearts. And we can pray about stuff that's on the news every day. And you have it all sussed. You're in control. You have the reins. And you will do good. So, our God, we trust ourselves to you. As individuals, as families, as a fellowship here, as a community, as a nation, as a world. Lord Jesus, may your life be ever more clearly seen in your people. And may the day when that life touches the whole world and makes it perfect and glows and burns forever, may that come soon, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.